We are so excited that you are here to listen to the Script Cake Podcast. Go ahead. Make my day. We want to help you develop your idea into a great screenplay. And who knows? Maybe you'll write the next big blockbuster. So you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah! Well, there's always a chance, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Are you ready to learn about screenwriting? Yes, All right, then. Let's get started. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Script Cake Podcast. We are so excited to have our esteemed guest here today, Mr. Christopher Vogler, who uh, I'm sure many of you already know who he is. Uh, He's been a consultant in the film industry. He's worked at Disney, uh, has a writing credit on The Lion King, and of course has written the the epic um, book on screenwriting, The Writer's Journey. Uh, And this past year was the 25th anniversary of The Writer's Journey coming out. Welcome to the Script Cake Podcast, Christopher. How are you? I'm great, Lavender. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we are excited uh, to have you and to share your wealth of knowledge with our listeners. Um, Let's talk about the 25th anniversary of The Writer's Journey. Congratulations on that. Yes, thank you. Um, You know, I have noticed that uh, with movies, there is a kind of a, a, a milestone that happens uh, after 20 years or 25 years, um, they will go back and re-release the film sometimes, or there'll be some promotion about it. Uh, they bring it back up into public consciousness. And um, it's actually a pleasant thing for the fans of these movies because um, they maybe get to see uh, behind the scenes or uh, uh, some uh, footage that didn't get used and uh, it, it helps to celebrate something that was part of their life at a certain time. So when the 25th anniversary rolled around, my publisher and I got to thinking this would be uh, a good way to uh, relaunch the book. The book has actually uh, been out in uh, three editions before this. We were always adv- uh, uh, putting in new material, taking stuff out, uh, adjusting things. And, um, you know, we just felt it was time for another, uh, another look at it. Um, so I streamlined the book and um, added some new material, particularly one big chapter where I was kind of sticking my neck out into a different area, which has to do with something called the chakra system, which is from uh, the philosophy and religious thinking of India basically. And uh, this is the idea that we have different energy centers up and down the spine that have different jobs to do, uh, that control different things like our survival needs, our sexuality, our need for power, uh, our need for love through the heart chakra, it's called, uh, our ability to express ourselves through the throat chakra, Uh, and uh, have sort of uh, psychic or supernatural experiences through the third eye that many people know about. But there are roughly seven of these centers, depends on which uh, uh, branch of philosophy you you adhere to. But uh, basically, I just found this to be something parallel to what I saw uh, as a script reader uh, that 
when I responded to a script uh, in the meetings where we were verbally discussing what we had read over the weekend uh, and trying to decide, are we going to spend, you know, two and a half million dollars on this project or $50 million on making a movie out of this screenplay? Um, other people responded in analytical ways. They would say the script um, appeals to a certain demographic or uh, we think we could get X uh, millions of dollars out of this at the box office. And I responded in a different way. I pointed to the organs of my body and said, that script got me here and here. And I'd usually point, if it's a good script, I'd point to two different centers Maybe it choked me up in the throat. Maybe it made my heart pound. Maybe it made my guts tighten up if it was suspenseful. But I realized those are the chakras. I was pointing at these mm. spiritual centers. And so I thought this is, a, if nothing else, it's at least a useful metaphor to get you thinking about uh, where people experience emotions in their bodies and how is my script or my novel reaching out to them and uh, causing them to feel something in different parts of their body. Um, I, I, it was real important to me as a reader to be affected in the body somehow. If I was bored, I got numb. Uh, if the script wasn't interesting, I got sleepy. But if it was exciting and gripping and emotionally riveting, then uh, I was up on my chair on the edge of my seat and I was, uh, you know, grabbing the pages and flipping through them quickly uh, and, and really feeling something in my body. And that's how I knew it was a good script. So that's one of the things that I uh, tried to put into this new edition. That is fascinating. As someone with Indian heritage, yes, I'm well aware of chakras and uh, that is fascinating as if I wasn't already going to buy a copy of the 25th anniversary. I'm definitely going to buy one now, if not more than one. Yeah. So, um, so do you focus on it primarily on how uh, the chakras in the viewer or the reader are impacted, or do you focus on aspects of how to implement elements in order to impact the chakras of people? Well, it's a little bit of both, but I think it, it what I'm trying to do is make the writer conscious of deliberately targeting certain parts of the body um, that in this passage, I want to create suspense and I would like to have a shiver go down your arm. Uh, in this passage, I want your blood to run cold. In this passage, I want your heart to pitter pat. Um, you know, I, I, I just am encouraging people to be uh, more conscious of that and uh, realize that, that uh, the audience is paying good money to have these buttons pushed. They want these things to happen. They come ready to have these emotional things happen. And if, the, if it doesn't happen, if you don't press those buttons or play that organ or whatever you want to call it, uh, they, they know it somehow and they're disappointed. And they, they go away saying, no, nah, I didn't get into that or I couldn't relate to it or something like that. Uh, because th this connection hasn't been made. So that's, uh, you know, something I was driving at, was, was trying to uh, get the, the writers conscious of that. And, and this idea of uh, thinking of it as circuits, that there, sometimes it works best when you're hitting on two of these centers uh, at the same time in a story. Like it's, 
very uh, uh, emotional and moving in a story like The King's Speech, where the king can't speak uh, properly, and, and he has to, and it involves his heart and his throat. You know, he, his heart is filled with love for his people, but he can't get it out. So the tension between those two centers in the body uh, is what makes the, the thing uh, tick-tock. And then when he does break through and he gets control over it, it's fantastic. And all that stuff comes flowing out of his heart and you, it just smacks you and you feel it in the audience. So this is what I uh, live for when I'm watching movies. And, and so I hope uh, people can, can start, just start thinking about these uh, centers. I can't wait to read it. That sounds absolutely amazing. Uh, one of the things I always tell my students is, if you give your audience goosebumps, you win. Yes, you know, this was one of the signals to me uh, about this whole system. Even I think before I knew about the chakras, in my 20s, I studied uh, esoteric things and uh, went to various uh, uh, psychics and so forth. But I knew even as a kid that certain kinds of music and certain passages in movies triggered something in my body, which was like a dog wagging its tail. I mean, something in me vibrated to uh, uh, certain kinds of classical music, sometimes rock music. Uh, and I would feel these shudders going through my body or a, a feeling uh, in the spine like um, somebody was uh, dropping uh, little pebbles down my spine or something uh, like, like it was a pipe that had uh, uh, like a rain stick. They, they call it uh, one of these hollow tubes that uh, uh, is filled with dried beans or something. And when you turn it, you hear this, you hear the, like a waterfall. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that's the feeling that I got in my spine at certain kinds of uh, movie experiences or musical experiences. And that was just delightful to me. It was so delicious that I, I began looking into how do they create those? And what is it in music that does that? Um, you know, it's a whole science, actually, how singers like Adele create this effect where she can make you cry by simply warbling her voice a little bit. She just goes, oh, la, 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 la. and that note held and wobbling a little bit like that is wired to trigger an emotional reaction in the audience. And, and they've even made fun of that on Saturday Night Live when they when Adele was a guest host on, on the show. She sang a couple of times and everybody would start sobbing ridiculously with like rainfall coming down their face. Uh, but it was acknowledging the fact that she has that power. And so uh, you know, you can do that with your words on a page as well as in music. And it's uh, quite a power to, to explore. You know, I've read something about Adele uh, because when she released her most popular album, which was three or four albums ago, I think, um, the one that launched her really, you know, across the world, she's like, I was just writing songs about my heartache. Mm -hmm. And everyone responded to it. She wasn't trying to write a song that was a dance song or, a, you know, a ballad or a this or that. She was processing her own internal stuff, which is exactly what you're talking about with chakras and, and the other elements, you know, in the writer's journey. 
Yeah, I think that uh, her attitude was was probably the best for getting a good result. You can go at things in a kind of calculated way, and you can plan and uh, sort of strategize about how to get uh, these effects. But I think it works much better, uh, and the audience recognizes it as more sincere when it's just something that's on your chest and you got to get it out there. Uh, that's that's really the the best kind of writing. I think the audience, you know, sometimes they enjoy being manipulated. Sometimes they enjoy even obvious manipulation. Uh, there is a pleasure in that, but it's the ones that sneak up on you and clobber you emotionally because they got in under your skin and somebody writing in their little contained space somewhere five years ago wrote these lines from their heart, and that just reaches right out of the screen and and hits you. So uh, that's what I strive for anyway. I love it. I believe there's also an analysis of a movie in the new edition. Is that correct? Yes. uh, I always uh, kind of switch out the examples uh, where I try to demonstrate, okay, here is this thing, the hero's journey, uh, as it plays out in particular films. And uh, the new one in this edition, there's some old classics, but the new one is The Shape of Water, Guillermo del Toro's film, uh, because I had never dealt with magical realism, first of all, uh, and I wanted to analyze a, a film of that type that was kind of in the dream universe. Um, th- that's how I interpreted the movie. The whole movie, to me, is someone's uh, memory of this woman. Um, it, it's all from the point of view of her neighbor, uh, who's recalling all these events in a very poetic way. And so, uh, I, I wanted to, uh, uh, explore that, uh, and honor that, but it also had a personal connection to me because del Toro was influenced and inspired by some old black and white movies from the 50s about the creature from the Black Lagoon. And that was a gigantic event in my childhood too. Uh, I think we both had kind of the same reaction to the movie. It was a monster movie where the monster grabs a girl and dives under the water with her. And they made three of them. And every time the monster grabs a girl and dives under the water with her. Uh, And uh, both Del Toro and I, felt the monster got a bad break and, you know, everybody chased him and tormented him and was afraid of him, but he was just in love with this beautiful girl swimming around. And, uh, uh, I, I felt he, he needed a, a sequel where he got the girl and that's what Del Toro decided to do. He decided to, uh, rewrite that story or, or take the universe of that and, uh, create his own, uh, version of it where, where justice was done. So uh, that's, that's why I chose that, that story to, uh, that film to analyze. Well, fantastic choice. It's one of those stories that there is nothing else like that movie that comes out. You know what I mean? You're never going to confuse it with something else. That's right. So um, let's take a look back. It's been 25 years. The book has obviously impacted a lot of people. It inspired me to reach out to you years and years ago, um, in addition to, I don't know how many hundreds or tens of twenties of thousands of people. Um, And it's even impacting people outside of the film world. Can you talk a little bit about some of the people who've reached out to you and told you what an impact it's had on them? 
Yes, that's the interesting thing. And I did kind of anticipate this. I always thought that the hero's journey idea, which is based, as most people know, on the work of a man named Joseph Campbell, who was a big influence on George Lucas and uh, the Star Wars universe. Uh, There's a a big inspiration there. Um, You know, I just felt that uh, that bundle of ideas uh, which is a very ancient story form, um, had applications outside of screenwriting, outside of storytelling. Uh, it's the story of everyone's life. And um, it describes, I think, um, in a general way, almost anything that human beings try to do that's difficult. Anytime you set out to do something challenging uh, against resistance, you're going to hit these marks. You're, 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 you're going to visit these same stages things like, uh, not knowing what's really going on. And then suddenly you get a call to adventure and then you might refuse the call for a while. And then maybe you meet a uh, mentor or a spiritual guide who helps you out, uh, and gives you some guidance. Uh, and then you go through some passages, uh, where you, face your greatest fear or you face death and you're transformed by it. That might happen a couple of times. Uh, But uh, these events and this pattern uh, keep repeating, you know, in all walks of life, not just in screenwriting. And the first clue about this was that uh, after one of my lectures, a woman came up and she said, I'm not writing. I just wanted, I was intrigued. Um, and I'm, she said, I'm a travel agent and I used your book and your outline to, uh, prepare some scientists who were going to the Antarctic on a scientific vacation kind of thing. They were going to do some experiments and they were going to do some sightseeing and just have a little adventure down there. But she said she prepared them with the outline of the 12 stages that I name in the book. And the scientists came back and said, oh, my goodness, it was so amazing how all the things you predicted came to pass. We had these moments where we thought we were going to die. We uh, came together as a group and, you know, all these different operations uh, were played up. But they said it also uh, amazed us because we realized this pattern was describing the way we do scientific experiments that we put up a, a proposition at the beginning, and then we test it to destruction and take it all the way through to death and, and uh, failure. Uh, and then we examine what we've learned from that um, and then go on to, uh, to the next theory. So it, it, it began to enter my mind that, that this has applications beyond screenwriting. And then I heard from lawyers and I heard from uh, veterans in the military and uh, people who are doing uh, work counseling police officers and uh, people working in the legal system uh, to help families going through divorces, all kinds of uh, ancillary uses of this thing. And people were saying, I don't know why, but this works in my field. It, it, it helped me plan, someone told me, it helped me plan for my first year as a nurse. Uh, I, I went through all the stuff you talk about, uh, and it really helped to have these guideposts and names for things, uh, the names for the turning points and uh, the sort of things that you'll meet in any kind of difficult thing. 
Uh, and uh, I guess the, the, the star uh, of the unexpected uses was uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, who told me at a conference uh, when he heard about the hero's journey idea, um, he recognized it. And he said, that's exactly the pattern we went through in founding Amazon, uh, wow. that we were severely challenged and uh, we went through periods of chaos and destruction and uh, almost thought it was going to fail. And then it came back to life again and came back stronger than ever. So uh, he recognized it as, uh, as a pattern in his own endeavors. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to collect as many of these examples from other fields as I can. Well, I have a slightly different other field. Um, I pitched my first ever documentary project uh, to document a guy climbing Mount Everest. This was back in 2007, 2008. And almost everyone else that was pitching was pitching it from like a videographer standpoint. I took your 12 points and beat it out the entire journey. And, uh, and I got the gig. I got to go to Mount Everest. <laughs> and right. I had to follow him around the world for a couple of years. And it was an amazing, amazing experience. So, wow, that's a life-changing thing. Terrific. That's it was amazing. great. Yeah. yeah, I got to go to base camp. So I didn't get all the way up the mountain, but I got to base camp. And uh, it was an extraordinary experience. So uh, I thank you. I don't think that's that's uh, quite <laughs> challenging just to get to base camp. I, I've done a little bit of... Uh, a uh, very small amount of mountain climbing. And uh, I, I'm aware, you know, it's uh, it's a real challenge to your physiology and your psychology. So uh, good for you. That's great. I mean, just getting from where you land in a place called Hukla to base camp is a mini 12-point hero's journey. Because <laughs> you're going up and you're down and you're up and you're down. and Yeah, and you're not sure if you're going to make it. And then one time I got sick, uh, and I thought it was done, but then the next day I got back up and you know made it out. So it's it's amazing how many different uh, parts of life the hero's journey basically lays out for you without even realizing it. Yeah, I didn't want to ask you. I believe you had like an online celebration for the 25th anniversary. Can you tell me a little bit about what that entailed and who was involved? Yeah, we had uh, a wonderful event that was planned by my publisher uh, a few months ago to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the writer's journey. And uh, they got together uh, a nice group of people, uh, some people from Esalen uh, helped organize it. And uh, they got uh, an expert in mythology from Esalen to speak. Uh, but uh, one of the guest stars was the director, Darren Aronofsky, hmm. who I have worked with a number of times now. And it turns out he is uh, a big fan of my book. And I knew this, but I wanted to question him a little bit. So I sort of interviewed him in this uh, celebration. And um, I was really surprised by how much he uses it in almost every project he does. He said he encountered it, I think, uh, when he was in school. I think he went to Harvard, and, and that might be where he ran across it. But uh, he uh, uses it at different stages in the production. Uh, at, at first, he'll do an, a rough outline of it with his writing partner, and uh, they will uh, uh, get some idea of their orientation for where they're going. And then in the middle of the work somewhere, They'll go back and they'll check it again. And then maybe in the editing process, 
they'll go back. And he uses both the 12 stages of the writer's journey, the hero's journey, um, but also the archetypes. And he tries to figure out who fits uh, what. I, I just did an exercise like that for him on one of his scripts um, where he just asked me to, uh, to give the hero's journey rundown as I thought I saw it. And he was able to compare that with his, his own analysis. So uh, that was really cool. Uh, to to hear from him especially because he's not an orthodox filmmaker. I think everybody would agree. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not like Hollywood found this recipe and they're just following the cookbook and it's uh, a kind of a, a, a tried and true uh, formula. Um, he certainly doesn't use it that way. He uses it, but he uses it in an intuitive and a creative way. And, um, uh, uh, I, I was very pleased to get that endorsement uh, from him as a, a real uh, creative powerhouse. That's amazing. Um, I could not agree more that uh, the recipe process of screenwriting uh, has done a great disservice to the films that we watch because um, over and over and over again, you basically see the exact same movie. And you know, so that's a, a point of frustration for me. Now, I do believe that a recipe is required, you know, when you're a novice and you're learning how to do it, but eventually you get to the point where um, it's somewhat ingrained in your system and you don't need that recipe anymore. I'm fascinated to hear because I would not have thought that he would use any kind of structure in his stories because, you know, they often don't seem at all like a Hollywood three-act narrative. It's true. Uh, it, 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 when you look at it, it seems, uh, where did this come from? You know, uh, the, it, it seems to be spontaneous and to follow its own internal logic uh, and uh, to be anything but a cliche. And yet he finds it uh, reassuring, maybe, or uh, just structurally useful to have some kind of skeleton in the back of his mind. Uh, to check against, uh, to, to make sure, I think, it's to make sure that um, this emotional side that you're talking about, I think you're working on a book to this effect that, uh, you know, the real, real secret of screenwriting is in emotionally connecting with the audience. Uh, and I, I think that's, that's uh, one way he uses it, is to check that out. Maybe at some point in the future, we can do a podcast breaking down either one of his films or somebody else's films and just kind of beating out uh, the stages of the journey. That might be something interesting. I don't know if you'd be up for that. Oh, I think that's a great idea. Um, yeah. One of the films I worked on was uh, The Wrestler, uh, which was his, you know, kind of comeback film after he'd uh, gone to Hollywood jail for a while uh, because of uh, the fountain, which was over everybody's head. I, I think uh, uh, some, you know, real hardcore film buffs liked it. Uh, people who like uh, crazy experimental things liked it, but it didn't do well commercially. So he was uh, in the shadow for a while, but he, he worked his way out of it with The Wrestler. And same thing for Mickey Rourke. Mickey Rourke was uh, almost unemployable because he was so erratic and eccentric. But uh, Darren uh, took him by the back of the neck and, and said, we're, we're going to make a movie and you're going to show up on time. And if I have to come and get you, which he did. 
uh, <laughs> he actually picked him up for the hotel every morning to make sure he was there. So um, that's one we could we could look at. Although Darren said, you know, he didn't write that one. Um, he, you know, massaged the script, but uh, he didn't uh, he didn't write that one. So it wasn't composed with this stuff in mind. But I think he did use it to uh, check the characters out and uh, especially the archetypes in that one. So that'd be fun. That's a good idea. All right. We'll revisit that at some point. Um, one of the main points of the the Script Cake podcast is to really focus on younger writers, people who are trying to finish, you know, either their first or second or maybe even third screenplay, because I think it takes at least three before you get the hang of it. Um, what thoughts do you have to share with them? You know, people who are struggling along trying to figure out because a screenplay is so much more than 12 stages or 15 points or, you know, nine questions or 22 points. Um, what would you recommend to the novice screenwriter? Well, I, I'd say um, the, the first step is to prepare yourself by reading some screenplays um, so that you know, uh, how did they get the effects on paper that affected me when I saw the movie. So I would say uh, seek out scripts for movies that affected you somehow. If, if, it, if you felt something, if it made you want to be a filmmaker or uh, inspired you somehow, those are the ones you should try and, and hunt down. And don't look for the published script. Like uh, they published a screenplay of, uh, pulp fiction, but it really didn't look like a screenplay anymore. They had made, they had printed it up and uh, you know, it's not the same as the screenplay format. Cause you want to see how did they say it to, how did they type a line that made me feel something? So I think that's one of the first steps. Um, and then there's a big debate about, should you write what you know, or should you write what you love? Uh, uh, and, and there is a good school of thought that says you should write something close to you that you've actually experienced. Mm -hmm. And I think among your first screenplays, there would, should be one that comes right out of the raw stuff of your own uh, anxieties and, and being. Uh, but beyond that, if you're absolutely fascinated by uh, the uh, Polynesian stories of uh, the creator God, then write a story about that. If that's what uh, moves you, that's, that's okay. And, and don't be hung up on it. You're learning your craft. I've heard, you, you mentioned three. I've heard it might take about five screenplays before you really know, do I want to do this? Do I want to keep doing this or make a career out of it? Um, so, you know, uh, repetition is a, a lot of the deal. Uh, I, I really believe in this thing Malcolm Gladwell talks about that you need to do something 10,000 times mm -hmm. before you really have mastery over it. <clears throat> and I uh, was in a situation in the studios where I had to do my job, read a script and write a report on it, recommending whether the studio should get involved or how it could be fixed. Uh, I had to do that 10,000 times. No joke. Wow. And uh, after 10,000 times, I was ready to write my book because I had tested it and tested it and tested it with uh, 10,000 examples. So I don't say write 10,000 scripts, but I think you do have to write 10,000 mini scenes, 10,000 
uh, uh, exchanges, 10,000 lines of dialogue before uh, you really are in control of it. So uh, just uh, uh, lather, rinse, repeat. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. I, I do want to go back to something you mentioned about write what you know. Yeah. Um, because I struggled with that because that's what they taught me, you know, freshman intro to screenwriting class, write what you know. And, you know, as a freshman, I knew what high school was like and I knew what it was like to play some sports and, you know, a few other things. But it wasn't until maybe 10 years later that it dawned on me. And I think write what you know is, you know, write what you've learned, write what your greatest experiences that you grew out of, you know, write about that. Uh, because that's something, you know, intimately. And again, going back to that whole idea of an emotional level. And once I started making that switch personally, that's when I noticed I was getting more of a response from my, from people who read my screenplays. Uh-huh. It wasn't just stuff happening anymore. It was stuff that was all emotionally connected happening. And, and if you were a person who had even a remotely close experience to that, you knew what I was talking about, even though I'm not talking about it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. I, I think the audience or readers uh, will uh, find something of their own in it. And that's what they're responding to is the sense that, you know what, this story is really about me. I think people are profoundly self-centered. Uh, and so it's natural that anytime they look at a story, they're looking for themselves. They're looking for where am I in this? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe not the main character, maybe it's some side character, but I wanna find myself in there. And if I don't, then I sort of check out. If it's not informing my life somehow, then I sort of check out. And I think this, there's maybe a bridge between these two ideas of write what you know and write what you love. Uh, if you are insane about, uh, an imaginary fairyland uh, living under the streets of uh, a big city. Uh, you can write about that as long as you plug into that story, your own trials and tribulations and challenges and triumphs. Uh, you know, and you can do that. You, you can, you can be writing about completely imaginary fanciful characters, but also writing really true stuff about what it's like to be a human being. So uh, I, I think you can you can have your cake and eat it too. <laughs> cake, well said, sir. well said, well said. So um, any other thoughts for the novices? Um, yeah, I, I think uh, repetition is uh, the, the main key. Um, yeah, another tip is something I didn't learn until I got into the editing room. I had one uh, experience where uh, I was invited in on an independent film that was being produced and directed by the actor Steve Gutenberg, who had a, a big career in the 80s and 90s, mm -hmm. uh, and then sort of uh, almost disappeared. He's still around and he acts all the time, but um, his big days were back in, in that day. Uh, but he uh, raised money and did his own film called P.S. Your Cat is Dead. And he asked me to come in and uh, uh, take a look at it because it was too long. It was, you know, a, a long cut that was three or four hours long. So I came in one afternoon and I ended up staying four and a half months 
working uh, to uh, carve it down. And I learned a big principle there, uh, which I would pass on to young people. You fall in love with what you've written and you don't want to let go. And you have to learn not to be brutal and throw it all away all the time, because then you're just starting over all the time and that's no good either. But to selectively prune the thing is the, is the idea. And I learned uh, a kind of a promise, which is if you take something out, you're not losing anything. See, that's what people worry about. If, oh, that, that beautiful line I wrote or that wonderful character or that great moment, if I take that out, I'm losing something. And I'm here to tell you, you're not really losing anything. Here's what happens. When you take out a line of dialogue or a thought or a character or a scene, the energy that was in that doesn't leave the composition. It's still there. And when you take out the line of dialogue, the energy of that flows into the other lines of dialogue or into the silence that's in place of the line of dialogue. Like we would take long speeches when we were editing this film and just cut them out and have the guy just look at the camera or glare at his opponent. And uh, that spoke huge volumes, more than a page of dialogue. Mm -hmm. uh, so taking out all those lines of dialogue didn't cost anything. It didn't, it didn't, you didn't lose anything. It flowed into the silence that remained and made that really strong. Uh, when we, we had to kill some characters, we, it, we shot a lot of stuff and uh, actors were all excited because my mom's going to see me on the screen and we had to break their hearts, cut it out on the editing room floor. Uh, but it, the energy of those characters flowed into the characters who remained and made them stronger. So that's a, a, a little thought for uh, beginning writers is, is be pretty brave with the, uh, with the hatchet. Uh, and uh, it's, it's amazing the benefit that you get from uh, trimming things. Uh, it comes back to you in, in greater energy in what remains. Yeah, that's uh, something I think especially common in novice screenwriters because they are novice screenwriters. They really want to hold on to this. You know, the whole reason I'm writing this movie is because of this scene. And uh, I always have the, the retort is, and you did write that movie because of the scene, and now you don't need that scene anymore. That's what the purpose of that scene was, was to get you to write the rest of it. And uh, yeah, it's hard for them to let go. And I had, you know, on the first movie I directed, the entire movie was about this one scene. And then once I cut it together, I didn't need that scene. And, wow. And that's it, amazing. It broke my heart to cut I, it out. Hurt. Oh yeah. No doubt about that. It does hurt, but uh, it's, it's comforting when you realize that, uh, uh, you you sort of worked yourself out of uh, that that need and and distributed the energy of that all around the rest of the script. Uh, yeah, you hear that term. You got to kill your babies when you're talking about you know sure. these moments in your screenplays. And uh, uh, I'm pretty sure that that has been something that I've had to do in every script I've ever written. So yeah, very good. Um, yeah, I'm I'm thinking about. Um, the beginning of uh, a, a script called The Piano. Apparently, uh, the director, Jane Campion and writer, um, 
saw a scene out the window of a bus. She was on a bus going somewhere and she saw a mother and daughter walking, holding hands on the sidewalk. And this, that image stuck with her. And the whole story of the piano came out of that simple image. Wow. Uh, and she didn't uh, write a scene on, on a bus because it was in a different time period. Uh, she didn't need that scene, but that scene got her, the image got her uh, to uh, this full expression. Uh, another thing I'd point out is um, you got to know what it's about, you know, and, and when you ask novice writers, what's your script about? They'll say, well, it's about a, a, a man. Well, his grandfather was born in the 1700s in France. And then, you know, there was this uh, revolution and this, all, you know, and he, they, they can talk for half an hour and they're still not on page one. They're just telling you all the preamble and everything you need uh, to unpack uh, all the exposition and so forth to get there. And then the, what's my story about? It's about the struggle between the men and the women and good and evil. And it's about this and it's about that and about this and about that. It's, it can't be about all those things. Uh, a story is about one thing, uh, one human quality, uh, one issue, one conflict. Um, and uh, it, it really helps if you can cook it down and imagine they're putting a gun to your head and they're saying, what's the one word your story is about? You, you need to know that. And maybe it changes in the course of developing the story, but uh, every time you sit down to write, you should know, my story is about passion. My story is about truth. My story is about loyalty or betrayal or some basic human quality mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, that you'll stick to. And it'll stick the whole thing together like the spine of a fish. You know, William Goldman, a great screenwriter, said that your story needs a spine and everything in the spine, every organ of the fish needs to be connected to the spine uh, or else it doesn't work right. So uh, you, you have to know what is the one thing, what is the, what is the one idea that is going to hold this thing together. So are you talking about an emotional idea? Or are you talking about, uh, you know, because all the things that you mentioned were kind of emotions. Like what, what specifically do you mean it's that one thing? Because I will agree with you. I have, you know, read screenplays that are about 10 things. And, you know, mm -hmm. one of the things that most of my, you know, intro to screenwriting students think is their they're movies about a superhero. And I'm like, that's not, there's no story there. That's not, a super, it's not about a superhero. That's just what happens in your story. And trying to get them to understand there's this kind of story that's going around emotionally. And on top of it, there's a physical journey that kind of correlates to what's going on is, is a long and arduous process. Um, so what exactly do you mean? Like how, you know, maybe an example of one of the movies you've worked on, how they found the story and were able to uh, uh, figure that out and move forward. Well, you know, I, I think you can hear it when uh, a movie's being promoted and the actors and the director are going around on talk shows. Uh, they often will say, you know, we talked about it quite a bit and we realized that our story was really about X and they'll name some human quality. Like it was really about hope or really about trust and betrayal or some other uh, human characteristic, uh, some general uh, human uh, way of dealing with things, or uh, uh, sometimes it's an emotion, uh, jealousy or hate or something like that. That's fine. Those are great. Uh, 
revenge. Uh, these these kind of things are really powerful, classic mm-hmm. uh, drivers of stories. But uh, I, I think it's it's got to be something that a lot of people uh, recognize and, and have had some dealings with it in their life that you want to open the arms of the of the movie big so a lot of people members of the audience can relate to it so you try to pick something that's uh, a bit general that applies to a lot of people and then get into it in some detail if you're writing about uh betrayal what do you think about betrayal that everybody betrays everybody is that your cynical view or is it that uh some people who have been betrayed can turn that to their advantage and actually uh, find hope and trust again. So, you know, it's uh, a, a procedure I think you go through of figuring out, well, what do I really think about trust if I'm writing about that? Uh, I'll just give you an example from my own experience. This is a movie that never got made, but uh, it, it's how I kind of learned this idea. I was called in to rewrite a script that was a World War III thriller. And um, they had done, in your terms, they had the concept, but no content. Mm -hmm. They had the icing, but no cake. Mm -hmm. And they had no idea, the first set of writers, uh, no idea what was going on emotionally or what the story was really about. They would tell you it's about a nuclear attack and it's about a surprise attack by the Russians and this and that. but they, they didn't have any kind of emotional content to it. And I was under a deadline, so I just started rewriting and, and thought, well, maybe I'll catch up uh, with these questions of what's about as I go. And it, this actually happened about page 75. I noticed in my dialogue, I had used the same word a couple of times, the word trust. It was about a woman in combat uh, who has to take over leadership and she's not cut out for it and it's not her thing and she has no self-confidence. So she doesn't trust herself and the men don't trust her and she doesn't trust the government or the, the upper levels. Uh, she doesn't trust the Russians and so forth. Um, so I went, aha, this story could be about trust. And I put the brakes on, I went back to page one and I made sure every scene was somehow about trust. The first scene, she was getting ready for an exercise and she didn't know which boots to put on. And the sergeant came by and said, what's the matter with you? What are you hesitating? She said, well, I I don't know. Trust yourself, pick something. And, uh, you know, urged her. And so the word trust was used. Um, and uh, the idea of it, sometimes not the word, but the idea of trusting or not trusting uh, was then worked into every single scene, and it helps, you know, to pull the thing together. So that movie never got made. Uh, maybe that's a good thing, because uh, who needs another uh, <laughs> a, a scary World War III thriller? But, um, but it, it taught me that lesson. No, I would concur wholeheartedly. I remember being on a set of a film I was directing in the last week of the movie, and we shot a scene and it just hit me that, oh, this movie's about this. <laughs> and I didn't realize it until like we were almost done shooting. 
And no, uh, I, in, uh, the case of uh, the, the independent film I worked on, P.S. Your Cat is Dead, mm -hmm. uh, we didn't realize until deep in the editing that the movie was about what does it mean to be a human being? What is humanity? Uh, because the uh, hero of the story thought he was a perfect human being or, you know, more of a human being than his enemy, who was a thief who had broken into his apartment and stolen his manuscript he'd been working on for years. So it ruined his whole plan uh, to write the great novel. And uh, he captured the guy. The guy came back to rob him again and he captured him and he was going to beat him up and torment him. And he realized in the course of the night, uh, this guy's more human than I am. He's, he's a family man and he's creative and uh, he knows a lot about uh, life that I don't know. Uh, so there was this awakening about, about what does it mean to be human? And, but that didn't come to us until late in the process. So sometimes you, you uh, make a guess and work provisionally with that until the story tells you better. Uh, so you have to leave it open that maybe the story will change its mind and become about something else. And then you can go in and do things uh, with dialogue and visually to back up that, uh, to support that idea. Uh, and, and then the audience gets this feeling indirectly, which is the best way uh, that, uh, oh, gee, this is about a human quality. Yeah. What are you focusing on now? What do you have going on? I know you're still consulting. I know you're working on film projects and working with studios, which you've been doing for many, many moons. You know, you had the great uh, 25th anniversary just happened. What's uh, what's happening in the future for Christopher Vogler? Well, right now, um, I am, uh, I've sort of become an online oracle in the uh, uh, days we're in now with the COVID uh, crisis around the world. Uh, I made a little tape for my publisher to help promote the 25th anniversary edition, where I talked about um, the obligation, I think, of artistic people, creative people in this time, which is to go inside in a shamanic way, the way the shamans used to do, the wise old men and women of the tribes. When there was a problem, they had techniques for going inside uh, and consulting with the spirits. And uh, they would humbly ask, uh, we have a problem here on earth. Uh, we need your help. So what have you got? And the spirits would oblige them and would give them songs, dances, poems, now screenplays, uh, that uh, ideas that uh, uh, are given to help people you know, the, the, the shaman would come back and stage a dance or a song or a ritual. And that was a healing thing for the people. It would bring them together and give them a common purpose uh, and uh, had great value in ancient times. And so I was encouraging my artistic tribe to uh, do this, to go inside, consult your own sources, and then come back and make works that people really need now. Uh, we always need entertainment, but we need it even more now because entertainment helps us make sense out of our world. Uh, uh, maybe it's an illusion that it gives us, but uh, I, I think it's more than that. I think, I think it really does help give us orientation.
Mm-hmm. So that's one uh, one thing I'm chewing on these days. Uh, also, I, I've been working on a, a chapter uh, in a, another uh, online presentation I gave. I developed some ideas about character. And I have talked about it in my book, The Writer's Journey, uh, under the, the idea of the archetypes, that there are eight, in my view, eight basic types of characters who do different jobs and stories. But um, I, I wanted to look at uh, character in another way. Uh, and so I'm, I'm writing a chapter, which eventually may go into another book, uh, which deals with uh, with character. And in, in my characteristic way, uh, when I'm studying something like that, an abstract concept or a, one of the working parts of screenwriting or storytelling, I always go back to the origins. I go back as far as I can. I look at the original meaning of the word in the earliest citation in whatever language that was. Uh, if there are stories about it, I try to find the earliest version uh, when I worked at Disney, that's how I did it. If they throw me something like Rumpelstiltskin or one of the fairy tales that they wanted to adapt, I'd say to the research department, I'd say, get me the earliest translation of this you can find. Go back to the Egyptians if you can. Find me the original uh, source of this story because there's something rich there. Mm-hmm. So with character, I went back and looked at the word itself. And character is a Greek word, uh, just like many of our terms, drama, actor, uh, scene, all those are Greek words, uh, protagonist, antagonist, and so forth. But uh, character is a Greek word that means a mark or an impression that is made like chipping into a piece of stone with a chisel or uh, carving leather, tooling leather with a sharp instrument or pressing your fingers into clay, uh, that sort of thing makes an impression. Uh, And they took that uh, physical thing and applied it to people. And they said, people uh, have impressions made on them. Life beats you up. Life hammers you. Life uh, stabs you sometimes and leaves marks on you, scars. Uh, But there's another side to it, which is, what mark do you leave on the world mm. by how you respond to those blows? Everybody's going to get beaten up. Everybody's got uh, disappointments and blows in life. But the real test of your character is how you react. And what impression do you leave after you're gone even um, so that people will say he or she lived and they made a mark and, you know, we hope a good mark. Uh, on our children, on our tribe, uh, on the world. So uh, that's that's uh, a, a new area for me uh, to explore. That is fascinating. Uh, I hope we get to read it sooner than later. <laughs> so um, I just want to say thank you, Chris, for taking the time and uh, coming out and uh, doing this podcast with me. You've been so gracious in the past. You've met with my students. You've conferenced in. Uh, we did that wonderful uh, uh, get together in, in Arizona where you spoke to students as well as the Phoenix Screenwriters Association. Um, you've been great and you've always been so supportive of me. I'm just very grateful 
to have you as a friend and as a mentor. Uh, thank you for taking the time for talking to us today. Well, the pleasure is mostly mine, so uh, I, I'm, I'm glad to do it uh, anytime and support you in what you're doing, which is fantastic. I, I think you're a, a real uh, great example of, of character and, and of how you're trying to make a mark and share with people what you've learned, and I think that's just fantastic. So good luck with your endeavors. Well, I appreciate it. And most of it's probably inspired by you. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much. And uh, um, we will do this again, hopefully sooner than later. Great. I'm up for it. All, All right. right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Script Cake Podcast. If you have any questions on screenwriting, please feel free to reach out to us at info at scriptcake.com. Also, please like our social media pages. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, check out our website, scriptcake.com. Until next time.